You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's pray. Gracious Father, take this day, um, take this time humbly offered, and and be at work. Um, Be with Mark and Andrew as they also teach. Uh, Be with us now for the next um, 30, 40 minutes or so, and uh, uh, speak so that we may hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a little bit of an unusual class today. Um, we are going to be looking at, a, at an old movie, 1955, called The Prisoner. Um, totally ripped this off. Was, was thinking about this passage, and there's just lots of ways. It's a one-off class out of Second Corinthians 12. Um, and Fitzsimmons Allison, one of my theological heroes, former bishop of South Carolina, um, has been here many, many times. Um, coming out of Fear, Love, and Worship, one of the books that he wrote. He spent several pages talking about this this movie, and I went back to it. I, I ordered it many years ago and, and got it, and it's this great. Um, went back and <laughs> realized that I don't even have a DVD player anymore. That's how long it's been since I've done it, and even my, my super drive doesn't work on my new computer. I'm looking at Charles, because he would he, he used to be, he would help me with that. Um, doesn't read it, et cetera, and so forth. So I've, I've read it on YouTube. Hopefully, it's the first time I've done that. Don't use like the stream movies that I'm using where it's relying on the Wi-Fi. I checked it this morning, lowered the uh, resolution, so I think we'll be good to watch some, some two or three different scenes from the movie. But to get there, it's one sort of... No. Well, I don't know if, if it changes. Based on a play. It was a play first. I've ordered the play because I want to read it. Um, by a woman named Bridget Borland, I think, and it was made into a movie with um, uh, Alec Guinness and Jack Hawkins. Um, I think Jack Hawkins has fallen off the screen a little bit. Alec Guinness, most of us still know, if for no other reason, is as Obi-Wan Kenobi from the original Star Wars, um, but I believe it's Sir Alec Guinness, and just two, two of the forces, uh, two men at the height of their career at the time, sort of played this, and it was controversial, it was banned for yeah, its awesome. view, so, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, so, we're heading up to this, because the theme today is weakness, um, the punchline out of Second Corinthians 12, um, what somebody called the summit of the epistle, the lofty peak from which the whole is viewed in true proportion, um, uh, this line, but he, Christ, speaking to the Apostle Paul, uh, the resurrected Christ, the ascended Christ, in fact, in a, res- in, a, in a vision or a revelation. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul speaking, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. And we are going to do some text work, but very interesting. Um, you know, each time I prepare for a class, I, I have a prayer um, that one or two things will stick with me. Um, because in the accumulation of preparing for, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 classes a year, if I remember that, one or two things from each time that I have the privilege of preparing, that's an overwhelming gratitude that I would have. And I think this is one that's going to going to stay with it. There in verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content. I went and looked at the word. That's the same word which we heard today in the gospel reading at Jesus' baptism where the Father speaks 
from the clouds. Um, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That word content, same word is translated here as content, uh, that in the Gospels, Mark and Matthew and Luke, we hear well pleased. So you could say the father speaking, this is my beloved son, I'm content with him. I'm at rest and at peace with him. Or we could hear Paul saying, for the sake of Christ then, I am well pleased with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the question, in our lives as Christians, um, how in the world do we make sense of this? Um, uh, Making some assumptions here uh, about uh, some familiarity with this strange paradox in the Christian life of God's power being perfected in weakness, where there's a sense of God's absence is where he's most present, or where it seems as we're most impotent and powerless, that God's power is sometimes most at work, or where God's uh, activity is typically most experienced, where he seems most passive. And all of this, the cross, in Corinthians 1.18, uh, where Paul resolves to know, well, it's in two, um, resolves to know nothing except Christ, where the cross is folly to the Jews, folly to the Greeks, and a stumbling block to the Jews, where in all this place where God seemed most absent, my God, my God, how could you have forsaken me? How could you forget me now? We now, with some benefit of hindsight, could say he's most present and he's working, where he seems most passive. For what else is a more passive experience than to suffer death. That word there even, to, to passively un- endure, to, to, uh, to not have any, none of us can, can withstand finally and fully the last hour. We're all gonna die. And we all have to endure that, that fact. It's gonna happen. Um, there's not a thing, not a shred we can do about it. We might eat something or do something to put it off a little bit, but it's still gonna happen. Um, and that passivity is God most active. Uh, all these paradoxes of light shining in darkness and the darkness not overcoming it, or strength being perfected, finding its finish and its end in something that we would call weakness. And so it's just to rub up against these themes, and this is an interesting movie to help us do that, but it's a great book by John Zoll, Grace and Addiction. My favorite story in here is also a way I thought we'd sort of set this up. So I want to read this, connect us to, to, to power. Hey, y'all. Um, to the idea of weakness, um, read 2 Corinthians 12, and then we'll, uh, then we'll do a little bit of movie work. That's the idea. So, Anthony, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Sir. Um, yeah. Um, y'all missed the best part of the class, I'm sorry to say. But so, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. So. Um, so this is a story um, about an old-timer named Dick, old-timer in AA language, um, named Dick, who goes to help a, uh, a man who is, is just coming to, grip, to, to grips with his, um, uh, with his alcoholism. Um, so I walked up, this is, um, what's his name? Ed, I think. No, Dick, Dick, Dick. Dick is the speaker, um, and he's now a young, uh, a young alcoholic, just on the verge of sobriety. 
So I walked up to a payphone, and I dialed the number for AA. I started crying, saying, I'm an alcoholic. Instead of rejecting me, the person on the other end of the phone said, just a minute, you wait right there, and sent out some guy named Ed. I actually resisted listening to him for a while because I thought he wasn't hip like me. I knew that I was just down on my luck. Ed, on the other hand, looked like he'd never had any luck in the first place. But then I saw his eyes. He did what it talks about in the big book. He relived the horrors of his past with me. He told me about himself. He did something that I learned a great lesson from. He asked about me. He said, what did you do? What do you do? And I started crying. And I said, I think I'm an alcoholic. But he cut me off and said, no, no. What did you do for a living before the drinking got the better of you? And I told him about my writing. He actually recognized some of the things I'd written. And he said, that's great stuff. You're really talented. God must really have something in mind for you. And just then I broke down and I started crying because no one had said anything kind or hopeful to me in years. And if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here today. He had, read in the big, he had read the big book and he understood that we don't get anyone into recovery by being tough on them, but we get people here by, by love. They're already hurt and they've already been through hell. We don't need to add to it. We need to let them know that there's a place where there's hope. And that's what Ed did for me. For after we talked for a little while, Ed put me into his Pinto. I love the part of that story, Ford Pinto, because it's 1977. We'll hear about that in a minute. Ed put me into his Pinto to get me something to drink so it would help me taper off the booze because I was now starting to vibrate. He realized I was going into the DTs because he had worked with wet drunks before. He asked, are you going to be okay? I'm going to stop here for just one minute and get some money so we can go get back on track, so we can get you on track. And he got out of the car to use an ATM. It was the first ATM machine I'd ever seen. They were pretty new in 1977. It was a hot day, June 8, 1977 in Atlanta. So before, so he goes up to the machine to get his $20 or whatever. And before he can get back to the car, I couldn't get the door open because my hand was rattling so much. And I had thrown up all down the inside of his brand new Pinto. And the only thing that he did when he opened the door and saw what happened was he put his arm around me. And he said, it's going to be okay. If, it hadn't been, if he had been critical of me, I wouldn't be here tonight. But Ed knew that we don't have new cars, new jobs, or new lives unless we're willing to work with another alcoholic. And he loved me, and he cared for me, and he took me to a place where I could weather the withdrawals. Just a story to kind of tap the vein, I hope, a little bit to get us into this, this strange paradox of weakness. Um, of what does it mean? Can we glorify weakness? Can we actually sort of hold weakness up? Powerless weakness, infirmity, need as almost a Christian virtue. Um, uh, here's Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Let's get into the text. I must go on boasting in a minute. Eh, probably not in that time. Um, context here in like chapters 10, 11, 12, Paul is defending his ministry again um, from the quote-unquote super apostles. Boasting in first century, it was, it was an art form. It was really, um, now we all sort of have this sense that boasting is a little bit gauche. It's not good. Um, that wasn't the case in the Greco-Roman world in Paul, which is writing him. It was really, if you were great, you boasted about it. You, you, if you were really great, you had bust made of you, and, and you put on the bust, you know, this is... 
you know, who I conquered and what I did, and, and you boasted of your, your victories, of your strength, of, of, uh, of all the things. You, 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 you flew your CV out there for everybody to see. And Paul is being um, chided for uh, being weak uh, physically. He's strong in his letters, but he's weak in person. And Paul just kind of leans into all this, and really with the, with the, a really effective use of sarcasm. He, 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 he knew what was being said. He turned everything on his ear, and this is where he writes in, in 10, 11, and 12. I wrote a couple of them down. It's kind of fun to hear Paul put this back. Um, I, Paul, myself, entreat you with, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, dash, I who am humble when face to face, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not show boldness with such a confidence as that I count on showing against some of you who suspect of us of walking in the flesh. And so Paul's just putting these zingers into people, trying to um, turn this idea of, uh, of boasting and foolishness because he's being made, be out, he's made, being made out to be a fool. Um, so that's the context that Paul is coming into in, uh, in, in this part of his letter to the Corinthians. I must go on boasting. Um, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, Paul goes into third person, we'll talk about why that is, in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. For though I should wish to boast, I would not be... A, uh, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, a little bit of text work. Um, Questions? Yeah. Is this man who went up into heaven another person, or is it possible that it's Paul himself? It's it's still a little ambiguous. Yeah. It sounds like it really is another person. Yeah. It's almost certainly Paul himself. Where he, in wanting to, to not boast, uh, he has this literary device where he turns it around and he says, I, "I'm not going to talk about myself. I'm not going to sort of play the game and do the quid pro quo and go back and forth." And so, kind of conveniently, he says, "But I'll talk about this guy." And here's Paul again. We were in Galatians together, some of us. Where Paul speaks, you know, is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For I have been crucified in the flesh. Um, 
And so there's two eyes. You always ask, who's Paul talking about? Is it the old Paul or the new? The old creature or the new creature? The old Adam the new Adam? This is Paul's anthropology. And Paul takes that, turns it a little bit for a little bit of a literary device. About the only time he does it this way, where something happened. This great and surpassing revelation from Paul. Probably, if it's, if it's years in the way that we do it, which it probably would have been. Paul's ministry was, was soon after Christ. Um, uh, or Paul's conversion was probably soon after Christ was, was crucified and, and, uh, and died and, and rose again, so probably 33 to 36. Um, he wrote his first letters probably in 48, 49, Thessalonians. This is probably best guess. The Corinthians were, what, 52? So that just puts it like 38, 39 A.D. Um, in those years where he's preaching and teaching, but not yet writing his letters or going on his missionary journeys, but staying in the regions of Antioch and Damascus and, and, and modern-day Syria. So he's going around there, and something happens in this surpassing vision and revelation um, uh, where Paul is taken up into the third heaven. Some debate whether or not this is like a, a Platonic, the seven, John Halsey could talk a lot more about this, the seven heavens or something else like that. It's probably just simply the first heaven is the region above us where the birds fly. The second heaven is where the stars and the sun and the moon are. And then beyond that, the third heaven. Um, just that idea like beyond our, our, our conception, um, beyond our imagination, the reality of, of God and the angels and the archangels and the principalities and powers that are beyond uh, what we can conceive of. He's taken there. Um, to that place which uh, uh, almost Voldemortian, you know, to pull out Harry Potter, that, that he who must not be named, surpassing revelations that must not be uttered or spoken. And then he wants to get off of that. He says, that happened. It happened to this guy, not to me, but to this guy. Paul speaking about himself in third person. And he said, and, and, and we don't know why, he just says, I'm not allowed to speak. It was a gift from God to Paul. And Paul heard the pact, and he said, like, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. But I'll go here. I'll boast about my weaknesses. And that's the interesting part where he takes it in there in verse 5. On behalf of this man I will boast, but not on my own behalf I will not boast. Now Paul in the flesh, except of my weaknesses. Um, but I, uh, I, I could do it because it happened, but I'm going to refrain from it. So no man may think more of me than what he sees or hears from me. And I think that's really great, what he says right there. Just like, who I am is who I am. Um, he, he pulls out the Popeye somewhere else, where he says, I am who I am. You know, weak, woebegone, sinner, Paul with palsy, your bad eyesight, or whatever this thorn in the flesh is, the anxiety that he has for the churches, whatever it is, Paul wants to make sure that everybody says, this is who I am. And it's through this cracked vessel that the Lord is working. Um, he doesn't want to be a super visionary. He doesn't want to be, you know, the, the one who's known to have... He just wants to say, I'm just, I'm just the Apostle Paul. Chapter before, he says, I'm out of my mind speaking about this because if you want a Hebrew, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. You want somebody a tribe of Benjamin, I'm more. I've got all this. Here's all the things that have happened to me. He pulls it out. He can do it. He can say, I've got the resume if that's what you need. But I'm just... I'm just an ordinary sinner. And he goes to uh, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, 
because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, whatever happened 14 years before he writes this, the letter, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, and a messenger, an angel, same word, an angel of Satan to harass me, um, to beat me, to kick me, to, uh, to hold me down, uh, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded. The echo here is Gethsemane, where the Lord goes three times that this cup would pass from him. And the third time the Lord comes back and he says, It's enough. The hour has come. Rise. Let us be going. And somehow Paul was given the same sense that the Lord was. He's putting himself, and he knows what he's doing, in a very similar place. Three times I pleaded, and I came back after the last time, just like the Lord did in Gethsemane, and said, It's enough. I've got my answer. I am content. I am well pleased with what's in front of me. Um, three times I plead with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, this is remarkable. This is where the red letter Bibles actually do come in handy. Because in the Gospels, of course, it's red, 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 and then it's not red, it's not red. And all of a sudden, at the end of Second Corinthians, there's a red line in there. And it really grabs your attention. You're like, holy cow, wait a minute. Red. The Lord is speaking. My grace is sufficient. Present tense. Present and ongoing. My grace is sufficient, and it will be sufficient tomorrow. It's enough. My grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is perfected, is made perfect. The two ways that we use that word, um, both completed, it comes to its end, and then it's like, like just the uh, tenth out of ten steps, but then also completed as um, there's nothing else to be added. Not only are you at the end, but now it's come to its, its full bloom. It's, it's completely and wholly what it was supposed to be. Um, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The echo there is to die. It is finished. Um, the last word from the cross. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly my weaknesses. So the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am well pleased with weakness. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, let's just go to the movie. Um, it's an interesting movie. Post my notes here. Um, 1955, um, this movie with uh, Alec Guinness and Jack Hawkins, like I mentioned. Let me make sure I'm good to go. Here's the setting. Um, the movie, obviously, was, was filmed after World War II, but so is the setting. Post-war, and um, the, the, both actors are, are English. Yeah. Jack, before you get... Yep, 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 yep. Oh, good question. Um, yeah, uh, we don't know. Um, I mean, great line. Um, I'll say this before I say what some of the theories were. Well, no, some... We don't know if it was a, uh, a spiritual or an emotional quotient or if it's an actual sort of demon harassment, an angel of Satan, the messenger of Satan sent to harass me, or a physical ailment. It seems like most people think that's what it was, whether it was palsy or epilepsy um, or bad headaches, this whole idea of a scalpos, of a thorn, you know, like piercing or um, a constant earache because he's been beaten several times. Alexander the coppersmith beating with, you know, you know that sort of thing. Uh, or quite likely, um, 
out of Galatians 4, uh, we interpret that maybe he had really bad eyesight. Um, see what large letters, Galatians 6, I write in my own hand. That's also the palsy idea. Um, but he says, look, I know your concern and your love for me. This is 415, if I remember right. For you would pluck out your own eyes and give them to me. The inference there is that he, you know, he's got really bad eyes. And it's like, gosh, you know, you need your eyes better. You need good eyes better than I do. Have one of mine, Paul. Um, but the short of it is, we don't know. And it's like somebody said, um, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, the church has benefited. What's that? Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, here's what Holmes, uh, Hughes said. Um, it has been better, not quite what he said. Um, the very anonymity of this particular affliction has been and still is productive of a far wider blessing to the members of the church universal than would have been the case had it been possible to identify with accuracy the specific nature of the disability. Because here we can all read into it. And I really think this is okay to do eisegesis, if you want to call it that, where you read into the text. Paul had a thorn. What was it? Was it palsy? Was it headaches? Was it an earache? Was it anxiety? Was it what we call today anxiety? Or was it um, spiritual temptation? Um, different periods in the church have read in sexual lust. Uh, and in some way, it's okay in this instance to read whatever the context that we're bringing to the text is and read into it for a sense of, well, if it was Paul, well, maybe there's hope for me too. If my thorn is, is, is a physical disability, well, then maybe I've got a solidarity with Paul. If my thorn is a spiritual or emotional disability, um, I can't not not be okay. My whole life is just a ball. Well, maybe I've got hope because Paul was there too grief or uh, uh, a relationship, an impasse, whatever it could be, I think it's okay here to read into the thorn because we don't know. We don't know like what Paul, is Paul ministering to us right now. Absolutely. That's what, it's pretty cool. Absolutely. Here's the word. My grace is sufficient for you. Anthony, bring this in. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep, yep. And when he talked about flesh, fleshly things, yep, yep. usually not about your knee hurting. Right, right. Uh, There's the Soma Sarks thing going on. Yeah. And so the, the association with thorn and flesh versus thorn and body might clue us in that it might be something more like alcoholism mm-hmm. or some sort of emotional distress or like a setting sin. Yep, covetousness or lust because the sins of the flesh or these, idolatry, covetousness, lust, yeah. those sorts. Yep, agreed. Um, that's what, you know, many people hold that. Um, uh, yeah, we have good guesses. There's good, good, good periods. It seems like different periods in church history have said, we really kind of think this is what it is. And then another period says, eh, we really kind of think this. But almost all will come out and say, we really don't know. We don't know exactly what it is. And happily, it does not matter. Yep. Because if it's a word of hope for us today, that's what I'm trying to really belabor today. So here's this move. Uh, Shoot. I knew it. (laughs) Um, 
this is a story about weakness. Um, uh, two very strong men, post-war Europe, uh, one of the uh, what we now call Eastern European countries, still then, an Eastern European country which uh, uh, came under Nazi rule. There's a, Alec Guinness plays a cardinal, or someone who just becomes a prince of the church, a cardinal. He's a priest in the Roman Catholic Church who was a war hero because he was tortured by the Gestapo, but he didn't, he didn't fold. And now he's elevated, and he's in this position of power, and he's a, he's a great man. You can just see it. He carries this air about him. He's a man of strength. That's, that's going to be the, uh, the contrast here, strength and weakness. Um, uh, now, Jack Hawkins, this person, um, again, don't be thrown off because they're English. He's now a, an agent of this, this new state, let's say Slovakia, Czechoslovakia, or something else like that. Um, and it's his job to interrogate uh, the cardinal, who's just been taken a prisoner, so the cardinal is the prisoner, um, and break him to bring him down because he's in a position of influence and he's an enemy of the state because it's blocking the state from being able to get to what they want to do and that's the obedience of all the people. Um, and so they arrest the cardinal in one of the really dramatic scenes. He's just made, he's just been made cardinal. They put the mitre on him and all that. And he's walking out and they close the doors, uh, but he still remains in complete control, Alec Guinness does. And he says, um, turns to somebody else right before he's being led away in his full priestly regalia, try to remember any confession that I, may be have said to, that I may be said to have made while in prison will be a lie or the result of human weakness. And then it's literally, you know, just very dramatic and all that. That's going to be the line which is then bookended at the end. I hope we have time to get there. Um, well, I'm going to, yeah, I'll describe this one and then we'll watch some at the end. So about halfway through, so then this guy, Jack Hawkins, um, I think they're just known as the interrogator and the cardinal. I don't think they're ever named. And so the, the interrogator goes through this long process of trying to break the, the, the cardinal down. He knows he can't use physical torture because he's already been tortured and the Gestapo couldn't break him. So he said, I've got to go a different way. I've got to find his weakness and exploit it. And so he brings in this great scene in the middle. I was going to show this, but we'll just talk about it where he brings in a, uh, a coffin. Uh, and the, the, the priest, is, at this point, he's kind of shaky. Uh, and, uh, and the interrogator says, open it. So he goes and he opens the, uh, the coffin and removes the pall, and it's his mother. And so he, it's 1955. And so he, he goes back um, and he says, and then he recollects, recollects himself, collects himself again. Uh, and he says, let me see if I can get some of my quotes. Um, he comes to see that she's still warm, uh, which pulls him back. He's like, you just killed her. You've just killed my mother. Uh, and then the interrogator, are you going to bless her? So he goes through and does all this, and he collapses, and he holds her hand, and then he shrinks back again. She's still alive. And then he pulls it out where uh, the interrogator says, uh, you can save her. All you've got to do is sign the confession. And your mother doesn't have to go to the to the research hospital, as they call it. It's a euphemism, uh, and you can save her a great deal of pain. And the cardinal backs up. Alec Guinness backs up and says, "I'm not going to do it. No confession." Um, comes to realize that he never loved his mother. He took care of her once he became a man of power, but he didn't love her. And he comes back and he says, uh, "I'm not going to sign it 
and her death won't be my fault. That's the key line. It's not going to be my fault. And then the interrogator says with this wry smile, I've got you. I know what you're doing. Um, this is not me paraphrasing. It's better in the movie. Uh, you, you never loved your mother, um, and you care more about your own immortal soul than you do saving her from pain. Because her mo his mother was a prostitute, and he was born in sin, uh, illicit. Uh, uh, he, he, he cringes at the memory as a young child of men coming to see his mother in and out. Uh, and he always wanted, his whole priestly life was to get away from that kind of filth. So strength versus weakness. And uh, that was the first chink in the armor with the interrogator, that he, he didn't love his mother, and he was more concerned that this isn't on me. It's not my fault. This is on the interrogator, and it's on my mom, because this is what she brought into her own life. I can't be blamed for this. Goes through the rest of the movie. We'll watch a couple of these where the interrogator says, he's now got to show us where his weaknesses lie so we can use it to destroy him. And then gradually the interrogator does this, gradually brings him through all these different uh, supposed weaknesses. So the cardinal is brought to see how unloving he actually is, and not merely to his mother but to others. He sees that he never was warm or loving to her or anybody else, and he comes to, uh, to see that his whole priestly life uh, of being an excellent administrator and a man of strength uh, he comes to believe that all that was an illusion. And he begins convinced that even the good things were motivated by pride and self-centeredness. And the cardinal was broken. We'll go to 118, um, uh, right towards the end of the movie. The interrogator, um, once this begins to happen, when the cardinal begins to be broken and begins to believe that his entire life was a lie, built on pride, Something really peculiar happens. The interrogator, Jack Hawkins, begins to turn. Um, he starts to realize there's a power greater than one he's ever witnessed before. That if the entire, if a man's entire life, if, if a man could come to believe that his entire life was built on pride, that would actually be the mark of a powerful humility and one that he's never actually seen. If a man could come to think that everything I've ever done was wrong, all the good works were but filthy rags, uh, wretched man that I am, uh, who's going to deliver me? Who, who could save somebody like me? Uh, and the interrogator starts to waver. Jack Hawkins starts to waver where he himself begins to turn, and we'll see some of this. In sympathy for what he's realizing as a truly great and humble man, uh, you'll, we'll read this, uh, uh, he'll say this, he was broken, he the cardinal, was broken by a half-truth, a distorted truth. He was too humble. He believed it when I told him that his whole world was built on pride. A proud man would have been more skeptical. And I have to say, gosh, look at the time. Um, yeah, let's just watch that. Um, Still got 15 minutes. Sure. Uh, 11 15, not well, you know, some people have things to do. Um, 1.18. I think this says a lot about Thomas Cramner, actually, is what I was going to say, um, who himself was made to sign 
confessions, believing his whole life was a lie. So you can see that the sentence is going to be supposedly execution, but here the cardinal is broken, but uh, not just by his pride, but by his humility. Uh, but in that process, the interrogator broke himself as well. Now he was un he's being undone by a very strange and peculiar power, the same power which Paul is tapping on here in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, and this comes out of... Um, what Fitzsimmons Allison had to say, the humble willingness of the cardinal to believe his own unworthiness had disclosed a source of strength and human grandeur the interrogator had not known. And then quoting 1 Corinthians 1, God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And then we've come to nearly the last scene, going back to his mother, um, where this is why I bought the... Uh, the play because I want to I want to get this and really sort of understand it because because Fitz talks about a scene that's in the movie that they they short circuited because here he's at the end where uh, the interrogator and here they are and the cardinal Alec Guinness and Jack um, Hawkins uh, their last great scene um, the interrogator offers to save the cardinal from this last ignominy where he was, uh, he was prepared to die. He made peace with that, but then suddenly says, no, you're not gonna die. You're free to go. And that undoes the cardinal. He's scared, he's like, I wasn't ready for that. To go out now and face these people who now think that I, you know, who know me for who I am, that is a sentence that's greater than death. The interrogator offers his act of mercy. He pulls out his gun and says, I'll shoot you. Would that help? I could do this now. He says, you would do that for me? He gets on his knees. He says, I can't, I can't do that. I can't ask you to murder me. And he stands up and he goes out. And the, um, uh, the last line that Jack Hawkins says is, you leave a man stronger than when you came in. Remember, this is all about human weakness. And he's leaving as a man of even greater strength. Here's the interesting thing that Fitz picks up. Something that's omitted in the movie. There's a little bit of a scene here where almost happenstantially, Alec Guinness says, what about my mother? Is she alive? And he says, uh, and the interrogator says, yes. And he says, thank God. And they go right past it. In the play, 
the cardinal asks about his mother. He is told that she is alive and well. Thank God, he exclaims. And then going back, the interrogator sneers, for her sake or yours? The interrogator goes back to his old self. And then very quietly, the cardinal replies, for her sake, I have great sympathy for human weakness. Remember, any confession that you hear will be either a lie or the result of human weakness, disdain. The whole arc of the movie, I have great sympathy for human weakness. And he walks out into the crowd that's assembled in the, uh, in the courtyard, several hundred people. He's expecting to be stoned. And it's just deathly quiet. It's a very compelling end uh, where he walks with a limp, a little, bit of, um, a little bit of Jacob walking with a limp, but a man at peace. And he carries it over where there's a real sense of strength and peace that comes out of this. We won't go that far, but here's this last denouement, the coup de grace, so to speak, um, between the two. Love that line. The evil of judges is evil makers who found peace of mind. Perhaps you should thank the doctor who diagnosed the weakness. Perhaps I should. Shall I be allowed a priest before I die? There'll be no need. I beg of you, let me see a priest. I care not to die.
moc otázky. Dobré. Pause there. Um, it's a good movie. Uh, the two bookends uh, ending with uh, For Her Sake. I now have more capacity. I now have more sympathy than I had for human weakness. Out of this brokenness of impasse and impossibility, a spirit of, of compassion and humility and gentleness and real strength, the power of Christ which rests upon us. Um, uh, that's the fuel for our Christian lives. Um, yeah, I was going to stop there, leave it open. Let me pray. Lord, take this time um, hastily offered and, and be at work, I pray. Uh, and, uh, and give us, Lord, um, the ability to pray in gratitude for our weaknesses, uh, resting in the promise that, uh, that you are there at work in the places where you seem far off, that you are most near. Um, Lord, come to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.